Well, Bethlehem and everyone else watching, let's pray together. So, Father, I join in the prayer that was prayed before this service started, and we pray that you would make this text happen in our hearts by the blood of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So help us rejoice as we see your purposes in our trials. Help us rejoice as we see your refining work in our life. Help us rejoice ultimately in Jesus. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, this text has been precious to me for about a decade now. It's been one of the texts that I've gone to over and over again to interpret what God is doing in my life, in my family's lives, in the lives of those around me. I see walking through suffering. You'll remember that last week in verses 1 to 5, Pastor Stephen called us to remember that we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection that we celebrated the week before. So we had two weeks of Easter resurrection celebration. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, even as God keeps us for it through faith. Verse 6 of our text today starts by saying, in this you rejoice. So I hope that you've been rejoicing, that you rejoice in this every day. Every day is Easter for the Christian. Bethlehem, no pandemic can take our living hope because Jesus is alive. Like Pastor Stephen said, our hope is as alive as Jesus and he is ruling and reigning and interceding for us even now at the right hand of God. And yet there's this funny paradigm in life. Maybe you even feel it in your soul as you say rejoice and think of the resurrection. Verse 6, after it tells us to rejoice in these glorious things, then says we'll be grieved by various trials. So over here we have Christian rejoice. And then over here we have grief and sorrow. These things are happening simultaneously. How can this be? And Peter is not alone in putting joy and sorrow next to each other as the paradigm for the Christian. For example, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says that servants of Christ are as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And as we walk through the pages of Scripture, we will see this as the paradigm for the people of God. The Christian heart is always filled with a mingling of deep sorrow and deep joy. And of course there are seasons where one is more pronounced than the other, but they're both always there and mingled. Why? Why is that the reality you're walking in this week? We're all walking in in this pandemic that you've walked in before this pandemic came. Well, that's true because our living hope is always alive and well. <laughs> that never changes. So we can wake up full of hope no matter what's going on. But it's 
sorrowful because we as Christians, more than anyone else, understand the tragedy of suffering and the horror of sin. We understand that Genesis 3 happened, that the shalom of the world has been broken, that everything is fractured. So I didn't skip out of my son's cardiologist appointment last August 14th, just chipper that he had to have open heart surgery. I didn't walk into his surgery day without deep sorrow. This, this shouldn't be. He's six. He should be healthy. My heart breaks as I pray for people I love who are in pain for years or who are afflicted by cancer and the end looks near. I get sad when I think of a world high-handedly ignoring God and my heart is grieved because I have people I know and love who don't know and love Jesus. Disability and disease should not be. We don't celebrate when we hear from our global partners of disease wiping out thousands of people. We don't celebrate when our global partners undergo persecution. Not like we just are are giddy and chipper about that. In fact, we don't celebrate the loss of jobs or health that's come with COVID-19. In fact, Romans 8 says that we ought to groan as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. These things ought not be. Sorrow is real and sometimes it floods in. A theme of this series that I think you'll hear over and over again is that we are homesick for eternity with God. We're a homesick people who long to be home with our risen Savior. We groan at the brokenness of this world and long for unbroken glory with Jesus. And yet something strange happens, doesn't it? When you sit with the person who's been in chronic pain for 10 years. When you sit in the room with the couple who's suffering with cancer. When you sit with a Christian who's lost a job or struggling with a disability or who's fearful and afraid because of all the uncertainty in our world right now, something strange happens. For those who are going through all that but whose hope is in Jesus Christ, mingled with or maybe even part of the groaning is an unshakable joy that when you're in the midst of suffering with people who are suffering and they trust in Jesus, you can Feel it down to the depth of their soul, to their bones. And that's what we're going to investigate today. How does that miracle happen? Why would we title a series, Don't Waste Your Trials, right? Most of the world, this is get rid of your trials. Get through them as quick as you can. And here we are saying, don't waste them. Lean into them. As Christians, we don't say pain is not real. We don't say we're immune and live in some kind of pretend triumphalism. But we also don't say pain is purposeless. Indeed, we will see that the divine pathway to deep joy in Jesus Christ alone is our pain. Sorrowful and rejoicing is the paradigm for the Christian life. They go together And our sorrows don't defeat us. 
or overcome us, our sorrows serve our joy in Jesus in the hands of a sovereign Father who loves us. So we're going to see three different things in this text today. Number one, we're going to see the purposefulness of our trials. Number two, we're going to see the proving of our faith in the trials. And number three, we're going to see the preciousness of our faith coming out of the trials. So let's dive into number one, the purposefulness of our trials. Read verse six with me on your phone or in the Bible you have open. Verse six says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now we know that Peter is writing this letter to a church with the backdrop of kind of building persecution. Nero was in charge. My kids and I just read about him the other day in history. And he was a wicked ruler who would eventually burn Christians as torches, set his own city on fire and blame Christians just for the amusement of it. But at this time, in this letter, persecution was building and not in full swing. So as we read through 1 Peter, I think we could read it through the lens of various trials, meaning the trial of building persecution. Christians were realizing and preparing for the fact that they were going to be more and more out of step, persecuted, pushed aside, abandoned by society, but also just through the mingling of normal sin and suffering of life with those particular persecutions. I think Various is divinely inspired to broaden this out to encapsulate all of the ugly, unsettling brokenness of this life. In other words, I think Various is a category big enough for whatever trial you find yourself walking through this morning. So what's behind these words for a little while if necessary. And I think what's behind them is a divine purpose in the pain. Another way to say it is, who determines if it's necessary and how long it's necessary for? Who gets to make that call? Well, if we turn to 1 Peter 4, Peter calls Christians in the midst of this broken world to share in Christ's sufferings. To share in the sufferings of our Savior. And so we can go look at the sufferings of our Savior. We know from Isaiah 53 that even with the evil that put to death the Son of God, the most wicked act in the history of the world, even there it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Or we can go to the garden as Jesus cried out saying, take this cup from me. And then he said, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. In other words, God determines if it is necessary and for how long. God is the one who will sovereignly ordain our trials. We hear similar language in Romans 8.17 about the necessity of suffering. It says, if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You should hear in the word heirs, imperishable kingdom, unfading. How do we get there? It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. How do we, as heirs with Christ, inherit that imperishable kingdom and dwell forever in glory with Jesus? We suffer with our Savior. We share in his sufferings. We trust that the Father who willed his son's suffering is using these painful providences in just the right doses to ultimately heal our broken hearts instead of harm them. So we can say our trials are a necessary tool in the hands of a perfectly wise, perfectly faithful, always for us, all powerful divine physician. And then it says they'll last a little while. So what does little while mean? Should we find our hope in the fact that certainly this will only last a week or two or maybe a year or two? I don't think that's where we find our hope. I think a little while is a phrase that means all of this earthly life. Stephen Lee a few weeks ago said the supply chain of our hope will never run out. And I think the supply chain of God's divinely helpful, precise trials will never end either. Why do I think that? Let's just go to two verses together. The very next verse in Romans, Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that's to be revealed to us. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul shows us in both of these verses that there's a, a present time where afflictions are light and momentary. Now having been close to suffering for almost a decade personally and seeing all sorts of it as a pastor... Most people, when you walk into the hardest situations, don't start by saying, well, this is light. This feels easy and short. What about Peter? Does he give us any clues to how he's thinking about this as he writes this letter? Look at chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Peter 5, 10. Here's what he says. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. So how is this for a little while? Well, it's for a little while in light of the eternal glory that we'll experience. There's eternal glory coming that makes the trials of this life look light and short compared to the weighty and eternal glory. That's why Peter starts by calling our attention to the imperishable and unfading kingdom that's coming because that is the ultimate destination of our lives, not these momentary earthly lives that are just a breath. So let's answer our question. Who ultimately prescribes just the right amount of trials in this short life to get us to our eternal home? Our faithful father, our perfect physician. These trials are medicine in his hands for our sick souls. Like a faithful physician who has to prescribe just the right amount of chemotherapy, causing some pain for the ultimate healing of the patient, so our God 
sovereignly turns our trials for our ultimate healing and our ultimate eternal joy. Which brings us to point two. If our Father is purposeful in these trials, he determines how long, he determines what, what is he doing? I want us to see what he's doing by looking at the first half of verse 7. Read the first half of verse 7 with me. It says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So what's our Father doing? He's putting our faith to the test in order to make it last. He's purifying it. He's taking it through the refiner's fire. The process of refining the most precious kind of gold that Peter was talking about here was a process where it was burned and melted and the impurities floated to the top so that what was left was pure, precious gold. And that is what God is doing with our faith. Mercifully refining us to remove the impurities. In verse 5 last week we saw that God is guarding us through faith. How is that guarding happening? How is he keeping us through faith? He's keeping us by constantly refining our faith through just the right prescription of trials to purify it and strengthen it and therefore make it the kind of faith that can endure to the end. For some reason, and probably like many of you, I've been doing a bit of learning about immunology. Never thought I'd be reading so much about that. And I've been learning how you actually need exposure to something in a certain dose to strengthen your body's immune system towards it. Now, I'm not here to debate how that should happen. So don't send me emails because I'm officially taking no public position. But in a similar way to that exposure, our Father is strengthening our faith by just the right amount of trials to create a faith by his sovereign oversight that is strong and endures to the end. He's, he's giving us just the right amount of trials and just the right dosage to strengthen our faith for whatever comes next. And only he knows what we need. This is a word to us to not begrudge his trials. To not think we know what's best for us. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, okay, that trial is done. Now we can just move on, get back, get back to life as normal. And another one comes and I am tempted in my heart to say, you don't know what's best for me. You, you don't know that I'm, I'm hanging by a limb here. You, you don't know what's going on in my heart. But he does because he's the perfect Physician James says something similar in James 1 verses 2 to 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So we rejoice in these various trials, but not because of the trials themselves. 
But because of the testing, the refining, the purifying that is producing a faith that lasts, it creates a steadfast person who will stand the test of time and walk more faithfully in the freedom of fellowship with Jesus day by day until the day we see him face to face. Now, I just want to say in this moment, so it doesn't sound trite or simple or easy, that this purifying, this rejoicing doesn't make the trials easier all the time. I mean, we don't live in a false triumphalism. I don't pretend that I just never feel broken or sad or hopeless or anxious or full of despair. My faith can go up and down subjectively in how I feel sometimes day to day. And those are the moments where I praise God that it does not depend on the strength of my faith, but the strength of my Savior. The one who has carried all of my sins to the cross, who's poured out his blood, who's given me his Holy Spirit as my seal so that I know he will keep me by his strength and not by the strength of my faith. So here's what I can testify to. In painful, grievous trials we've endured, with many tears and anxious moment, what has happened is a settled sense of joy deep in my heart, sometimes through tears. And the best way to describe it is with the words from John 6 where I'm sitting there, maybe with my wife or with friends or maybe with people from the South Campus walking through suffering together. And my heart just goes, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There are times I want to leave you, but you and I both know, Lord, that I'm not going anywhere. You're mine. All I have is yours, and all that I am is you. I am, by the grace of God, what I am. I'm not going anywhere. And in the midst of the tears and the pain, he's working a settled sense of you belonging to him and you clinging to him and you being steadfast that you will never leave him because he will never leave you or forsake you. The proving of our faith through trials is the sweet, painful refining of faith into something that will last until the day our faith becomes sight. Notice in verse 7 that there's a preciousness that's talked about. Which leads us to point 3. The preciousness of our faith from trials. This faith, it says, is more precious than the most precious gold. Because even the most precious gold will someday perish with the world. But our faith gets us something that will not perish. So I want to zoom in right now on the second half of verse 7 and then jump to verse 9 and then we'll come back to verse 8 at the end. So look with me at the second half of verse 7 and then jump to verse 9. It says that this precious faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it says that this precious faith is obtaining for us the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Why is that faith refined in the fire more precious than all the gold this earth could give you? Because it gets Christians what we want most. 
It gets us our salvation now and forever. If Jesus isn't your ultimate treasure, then it literally makes no sense to rejoice in trials that strip other things away to help you see and savor him more. But if he is our greatest treasure, then we rejoice in him because these trials are not drawing us away from him, but bringing us near to what we want most. Now, the grammar in verse 7 is surprising Because we could look and say, well, what is being praised? We're used to saying glory to God. God exists for his own glory. But here in verse 7, what is being praised? Our refined faith is being praised. In other words, when Jesus shows up, we will receive praise and glory and honor. And I just want to show you that this is a category in the book of First Peter, just show you from two different places. First, First Peter chapter two, verse seven says this: "It says so. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So for those who believe, who endure in their faith, there's honor." Or First Peter five six: "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God." So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. This is a category for Peter. This refined faith is working for our good to make sure that when Jesus returns, we will be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your master. Now we all know he's not going to say, well done, good and perfect servant. But God is refining our faith. Be filled with hope that God is refining our faith so that we can be faithful. And on the day Jesus returns in his glory, our faith will be praiseworthy as an echo of praise to God for his faithful keeping and refining of us. He will see us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, because he has kept us and he has refined us and he is making us praiseworthy. That is amazing. In this world, there is no honor or exaltation for following Jesus Christ. There's no recognition for having joyful faith in suffering. You can imagine Peter writing to a group of people who are about to endure persecution and frankly would have just been a lot easier to say, I'm going to go where the world recognizes me. I'm going to go where I can get praise and honor here and not sign up for persecution. But in this world... We have to make peace with looking foolish when we don't go after all the money and fame and honor. We have to make peace with looking foolish when our treasure is Christ and not money and influence and comfort and convenience and power. But there is honor coming. I mean, can you imagine this moment? Sometimes we have to use our redeemed imagination. Just imagine, I spent time this week just imagining what is it going to be like when me, knowing myself full of sin, full of wickedness, and yet redeemed by Christ, filled with his spirit, really walking in more faithfulness by the power of the spirit, being refined in trials, that I'm going to get there someday, see Jesus. He's going to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you believe that? 
Are the trials not worth that to hear from our master, well done, good and faithful servant? We don't need to appease him. We're not trying to win his love, but because he loves us, we love to please him. What a moment that will be. So live in the midst of trials for the acceptance and praise of Christ forever, not the acceptance and praise of man now for a moment. I love the verse that says, Our God rejoices over us with loud singing. Do you believe that? Or do you think that he's 10 years in with you and going, I did not see this coming. Oh man, I thought that they'd be way further ahead by now. I'll let you in on a secret. You're the only one hoping in some future better version of yourself. God knew what he was getting. God redeemed you. God poured out his blood for you. God is giving you the right trials to refine your faith. God rejoices over you with loud singing. And I think that singing will be the loudest in our ears in that moment when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. The moment he calls us home or returns. And notice in verse 9, that this praiseworthy faith testifies that we already have the salvation we long for now. We're obtaining the salvation of our souls now. We have that today. We have eternal life with Jesus today. It's not like we celebrate Easter and look forward to some eternal life someday. We celebrate that because Jesus died and rose again, we have eternal life now. We are by faith already seated in the heavenly places with Jesus. We have by faith been raised from death to life. We have by faith been adopted into his family so we can cry, Abba, Father, in the midst of trials. Nothing can separate us from his love. We have eternal life now by this refined faith. Let me ask you a question. Because as I read social media and hear the news I wonder if Christians, I wonder if we're buying into the narrative that COVID-19 will be the main story told of 2020. That, that COVID-19 and maybe secondarily the presidential election and all this political stuff going on, that those will be the main storylines told of 2020. And I want to give eternal perspective that says it will not be the main story in the books of eternal history. The main story of 2020 in eternity future will be how God refined his church through trials. How God weaned his church off of comforts and conveniences to set their hope fully on Jesus. Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, how God was helping them to realize that they have a glorious salvation now and look fully to the salvation that's coming in the future where there'll be pleasures forevermore. The main story of 2020 will be God keeping his promise to build and spread his church and reach the nations with the gospel. That will be the main story of 2020 where God caused his church to hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus because he weaned them off of disordered hopes in such a way that they realized our only true and lasting hope really is Jesus. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts and in our lives as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. The preciousness of our refined faith is that it gets us to the day when we see Jesus face to face to hear 
well done, good and faithful servant. And it connects us to him in the here and now so we can know that salvation is ours now and will be ours forever. So I want to go back now to verse 8. And I've titled this application, Christians are set free from pain management. I'm going to go back to verse 8 and I've titled this, Christians are set free from pain management as our application this morning. Read verse 8 with me. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Ultimately, this testing is worth it. And this faith is precious because it connects us to Jesus. This faith awakens our heart to tell us that he is the thing we love and long for most. This is what it means to be a Christian. I hope you don't read verse 8 and go, man, I hope someday I get there. But I hope you've had tastes of this. This is what it means to be born again to a living hope. This is the confirmation that you're born again to a living hope. That in the midst of these refining trials you find, I love him. I still love him. I still long for him. I can't go anywhere else. I believe in him. He is where I'm running when I feel afraid, when I feel weary. You say, I find my joy in him. Nothing is stealing my joy. The sovereignly prescribed trials of this life strip away disordered loves, disordered dependence and securities, and disordered joys to mercifully give us what our hearts need most, even when we don't know that we've been drifting. Why do I say disordered? Just a note about why I'm saying it. Because sometimes we all know that our hearts just drift towards things that are, are sinful. Like maybe you're trying to cope with COVID by, by clicking on that link or by binging on that show or by, um, or by binging on that beverage. Maybe you're trying to numb all this pain with something like that. It's just sinful. You're just giving yourself to it. But maybe our security has been in a love for our family or a desire to be healthy or a desire to work and be productive. Those aren't in and of themselves sinful things. They become wrong and disordered when we put them in the place of Jesus. So these trials focus our eyes on Jesus that we would say our love our rock, our joy. Isn't that what COVID-19 has been doing? A virus comes and suddenly health and jobs and economy and way of life and conveniences just gone in a snap of the fingers. And what Christians have been finding in the midst of COVID-19 is that what's not gone is Jesus Christ. His presence, his power, his faithfulness to his promises. God prescribes these trials to make the sun dawn on our sleeping hearts. Like the sun rising, bringing light and beauty to a world that was sleeping, so God wakes up our sleeping hearts through trials to an unmatched, unparalleled hope and beauty of Jesus that lasts forever. These trials strip away all easily explainable earthly joys that will perish and give us a joy that is inexpressible and glorified. In Jesus Christ. Now this kind of joy is unexplainable to those who don't see Jesus as glorious. I mean I've talked to people 
who think that I'm foolish when I rejoice in trials. How can you rejoice in the midst of cancer? How can you rejoice in the midst of chronic pain? How can you rejoice when your son's going to open heart surgery? How can you rejoice in COVID-19? And the only answer we have as Christians is because we have Jesus now and forever. He's who we want most. These trials aren't distancing me from my Savior. They're not pulling me away from the thing I want most. They're drawing me in. They're focusing me. They're, they're helping me see him for the sure, steady, beautiful, wonderful, glorious, all-powerful, all-sufficient Savior that he always is. My suffering and my trials don't create my dependence. Like, oh, now I need Jesus. They just highlight the dependence I should always have so that they're a gift to get the Savior that I always want. What an opportunity we have to show the preciousness of Jesus in this moment. This is a great time to be a Christian. This joy is inexpressible. We can't describe it fully. And so our best, our best effort is just to try. He's so good, so true, and so steady, and so wonderful that we just keep writing songs, preaching sermons, coming to worship, going to the Word to try to find words to describe our inexpressible joy. And this joy is glorified. What does that mean? It means it's a future heavenly joy breaking into the present earthly brokenness. We're waiting for our fullness of joy and the glory of Jesus someday when he returns. But for now we see that glory break in. We see it with unveiled face and are set free to love him and rejoice in him now. Glorified, inexpressible joy in Jesus causes our hearts to rest. Now, when you hear the words glorified and inexpressible, maybe you're thinking it's just always just hooping and hollering, even in the midst of trials. And I'm going to tell you a secret, give away one of my pastoral secrets. And once in a while, when I'm with a couple or a family who has gone through suffering but has this rock, this rock-solid hope in Jesus Christ, and we're, maybe we've sung a hymn together, maybe we've read scripture together, and we're going to pray one of the things I love most is when I'm praying and I make sure everyone else has their eyes closed appropriately, like they, we all think we should when we pray, I cheat. And I open my eyes and I can't tell you how many times smiles come as we pray God's word and we rejoice in him and we pour out our cares and our anxieties before him. Smiles come. So sometimes it looks like whooping and hollering and going all in. And there are times for that. And sometimes it looks like the steady smile of a saint who knows that they're going to be with Jesus soon. And is going through immense pain. And so Christians are gloriously free to avoid pain management. We're set free to not live a life just trying to avoid pain at all costs. By living for our comforts and our conveniences as a first priority. We're set free from trying to numb our pain with addictions and entertainments and hobbies. Just want to exhort you this morning. Don't settle there. Don't stay there. Don't try to numb the pain. Don't try to avoid the pain. Instead, as Christians, we lean into the pain. We lean into the trials. We groan deeply. We feel the brokenness. We let it refine us. We want to let the medicine do its work. 
We let it wean us off of wrongly prioritized joys. We weep with those who weep. We look to our Savior who walked through suffering for the joy set before him and trusted his Father. And now in Christ we share in his sufferings for the eternal joy set before us. A partial glorified joy now. But one that we'll have in full one day very soon. And so what does this look like? It looks like sometimes through tears, rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because we know that every trial brings us closer to Jesus as it refines our faith. We lean into the sorrow. We lean into the joy because we know the trials bring refined faith. And we know that our faith gives us Jesus now and forever and that he is what we need and in our heart of hearts what we want more than anything else because he is better than anything else. Let's pray together. So Father, I prayed at the beginning that this text would come true in our hearts. And I want to pray now as we sing this next song that you would make our hearts believe that Jesus is better. That you would help us trust you, that you are a wise physician who knows just the right dose we need to heal us and not harm us, that we'd find comfort that you are our overseeing physician, that we'd find joy as you wean us off of false and disordered joys and loves and hopes and put our hope fully on Jesus Christ where there is unshakable joy now and forevermore because we have our salvation and we will have it forever. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.